Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley, that this winter is stressing the importance of being aware of king tides that will hit Oregon's coastal beaches this coming November, December, and January. The tides can be extremely dangerous and require extra caution from visitors. We'll talk more about king tides just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department is asking Oregonians to unlock their creativity with poetry, drawings, photos, and songs inspired by the state's most beautiful places. You can submit your work as part of the Oregon State Parks Centennial Creative Challenge. It's all part of celebrations honoring 100 years of state parks in Oregon, and you can find out more about the Creative Challenge at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about a troubling subject and one that'll hit home for a lot of Oregonians, and that's new research detailing the struggle of some of Oregon's most iconic trees. We'll talk about which trees are struggling, why they're struggling, and what we can do about it. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, over the past few months, a series of research papers and studies have started to emerge showing that three of Oregon's most iconic species of trees have been dying and struggling in concerning numbers. The reasons for the die-offs have been linked to the state's string of hot and dry years, along with attacks from native and non-native insects. Three studies, or surveys, have all found concerning trends for western red cedar, Oregon white oak, and Oregon's population of fir trees, including the vaunted Douglas fir. So to talk about the studies, about what they tell us and don't tell us, I'm joined by Christine Buell, a forest entomologist with the Oregon Department of Forestry. She was the author on several of the studies and reports and is well-versed in the research. Christine, thanks for being with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so what I wanted to do was start out with kind of an overarching question. These studies and reports have all come out fairly recently. There was one you authored about a dieback in western red cedars. There was a report about increasing damage to Oregon's white oak due to an invasive bug. And finally, last week, a report from the U.S. Forest Service that went as far as to describe the situation with Oregon's fir trees as fir-mageddon because of the record-breaking number of tree deaths in the Northwest and particularly in Oregon. So taken together, this seems alarming. But as someone who studies this, how do you view this research? Like, what is it telling us about the state of Oregon's forest health? Yeah, well, at the risk of sounding like Chicken Little and the sky is falling, um, the pace of our changing climate and its impact should be alarming. 
Um, but for natural resource specialists, the trend in tree mortality is not as surprising, unfortunately. So for quite some time, um, scientists have been warning us about the effects of climate change, and we're seeing its direct impact on tree health on the landscape, but at a level that's becoming more visible to more than just the natural resource specialist whose job it is to monitor and address such impacts. So it's becoming more visible to the general public as well, because it, it looks pretty devastating. And the pace of climate change is increasing in both urban and wildland forestry. So um, we need to think about what we're seeing on the landscape and to consciously plan ahead for what species we put where, and I'll keep repeating that, and at what density. So, I mean, I've spent a lot of time reporting on Oregon's climate, particularly since 2015, and the numbers are pretty striking. So of the 12 hottest years ever recorded, eight have come since 2000, six have come since 2010. We had the extreme heat dome in 2021, and this summer was somehow even hotter. We've had this consistent drought. So are these die-offs largely a cause where trees that evolved under cooler conditions are just struggling to keep up with these new normals or these hot stretches? Or is there something more complex going on? Yeah, I have a lot to say on this topic. Um, and I, I complain nowadays that even though I'm an entomologist, I talk more about climate change because it's this um, predisposing factor to stressing trees and making them more susceptible to insects and diseases and et cetera. But I do want to um, make clear that it's not just about record high temperatures and record low precipitation. So it's not about records only. We also need to consider the timing, the duration, the frequency of these hot droughts. So for example, um, in the spring, when trees are most actively growing, they need a lot of water. And so if it's dry, they could face more damage than if it's dry during their normal dormant periods. Um, another example, if it's hot for a short period of time, many species have evolved the ability to tolerate that heat by reducing water loss through their leaves. But there's only so long they can do that for. Um, and then in, in a last example, if there's year after year of drought um, and trees don't get a reprieve to rebuild their damaged tissues, then they can never catch up, even if years of drought are punctuated by adequate um, precipitation. So I caution people that say, well, um, we've had hotter temperatures in the past or we've had um, drier periods. Well, you have to consider these other factors that are having an impact. It's not just about records. And so getting back to what you said, um, we must consider exactly that, that some species may be germinated or evolved during different conditions, and these sudden changes can throw them for a loop. And so Western red cedar, which we're going to talk about, is a great example of that. For years, they've subsisted in cool, shaded environments along streams, but now we're seeing dieback in these um, areas where they previously preferred to inhabit, because even though they're still running water in some of these areas, it may not be at the levels that the tree, tree has grown with. And so we need to remember also that larger trees uh, may be needier. And unlike herbaceous, ornamental, and agricultural species or annual plants, um, trees are strong, but they're long-lived, and they can only withstand so much over uh, multiple years, and every individual can only handle so much stress. So it's uh, based on the species, their drought tolerance, but also the individual. What's the fitness of that individual tree? 
but we are seeing stress um, in most, if not all of our tree species across the state, which is an indicator of something overarching, not something targeting specific species. And that overarching thing is often climate change. We correlate where we see dieback with our climate records <clears throat> and um, we can make some pretty strong associations there that all of these factors going on with heat and temperature, that's what's having the strongest impact. Gotcha. So, I mean, I've always thought of it as, you know, when you have something this significant as, a, you know, it's a cliche, but like the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, like it's not just heat, it's not just dryness, but there's like other things layered on top of it that, that are fueled by that. Like, I mean, our trees just mm -hmm. facing multiple stressors that eventually are catching up to them. Yeah, and that's a really common forest health um, story that we see in that there is something underlying that's the primary stress agent. That's that primary thing that if you were going to manage for it, that's what you want to target. But then there are all these other interactions happening that layer on top of it. So you can have drought stress and then maybe you have root disease at that site that wasn't that problematic before. But maybe now that some of the roots are dying back, there are less root tissues to collect that moisture, even if it does become available later. And then, um, then these trees send out a stress response because they're really thirsty and the beetles can smell, literally smell that stress response. And they come in and they attack and they can develop into populations that can overwhelm the defenses of the tree. So it is a layering effect. And we often will point to the last thing that we see there or whatever has um, actual signs and symptoms that we can clearly see. So seeing bark beetle attack is very clear. And I often get calls saying the beetles are killing my trees when really what you want to target your management is at is the precursor to that. What actually is stressing the trees? Otherwise, if you treat the beetle, it's just a Band-Aid. Well, let's step back for just a minute and zero in on each of these studies and these trees, okay. because it's worth talking about what makes each of them special and iconic, why people love them so much. So let's start with the, the Western Red Cedar, which, I mean, if you talk about beautiful, beloved tree, I think Western Red Cedar is at the top of almost everybody's list in Western Oregon. It's not only cool to look at, especially the old growth ones, but it's also important for everything from timber to indigenous culture. So for you, what makes red cedars stick out? Why are they special? Well, you know, it's it's for me, but it's also a lot of the people from this land that perhaps most importantly, Western Red Cedar are special because they're part of the heritage of this land and the groups of people that inhabited it since time immemorial. So our indigenous tribes were well aware of this tree as a beautiful part of our landscape, but also um, it, it provides so many things for the ecosystem and for us as humans. And they utilized it widely for canoes, baskets, medicines. And I said utilize in the past, they're still utilizing it. But in Oregon, they often do not have enough of the red cedar or of sufficient quality or size that they require for some of these products. So some of that is a bit past tense for them, which is really sad to um, lose such a heritage species, part of our ecosystems, but also important cultures. Um, it's an important species that supports wildlife, providing nesting sites and contributing to nutrient cycling and stream shading. And um, it's even more fantastic when you see these larger old growth specimens um, because Western red cedar can live over a thousand years, um, but it's rare to see these old growth trees due to a lot of um, issues of mismanagement, poor logging practices of the past, um, which we are still currently working on with um, state regulations, rectifying um, the way that we manage our timber on private lands in particular, but we can't control markets. Um, and 
So there's just there's a, a loss of this really beautiful heritage uh, species that supports so many different species, including humans. Um, <clears throat> and I do want to say that Western red cedar is extremely insect and disease resistant and tolerant. So when it is healthy, meaning when it has enough moisture to produce sap, which is a chemical and mechanical barrier against pests, it can do just fine on the landscape under a variety of conditions. But they haven't had that moisture. Um, and then we've been picking off red cedar on lots of parts of the landscape where it did grow really well. And so now we're left with, you know, not as many trees or fewer uh, or smaller trees um, that now are really stressed in those sites that they remain in. Okay. So you were part of the study that looked at what you called dieback in Western red cedar. Uh, in the study, you wrote that for the past decade, pockets of Western red cedar have been dying where they should be thriving, such as along streams and in shaded areas, as you just mentioned. So first of all, what, what do you mean by dieback? And second, where are you seeing this take place and to what extent? So we're using the term dieback to note where we're seeing a range of, from damage to decline or mortality at varying rates in the tree. So it's really variable. Sometimes it's immediate mortality of the tree. Sometimes it's a slow decline where you see some thinning of the canopy and, and then it, it might stick around for a bit longer or it might die soon after those symptoms appear. Um, and then the symptoms are typically the crown thinning or top kill, which again, it can appear very suddenly. But in reality, the stressors that are causing those symptoms have been brewing at least internally within the tree's physiology for some time, or we tend to miss the initial external symptoms. A, a typical landowner isn't inspecting their trees every single day. And if it's a slow progression of those symptoms, it may appear to occur suddenly. So dieback is just kind of encompassing all the different stages of that tree going through um, the motions towards mortality. And we're seeing this dieback all along the range of Western red cedar. So that's from Oregon through Western BC. Um, <clears throat> and then from the coast, the West, um, West Coast region, all the way um, inward towards Idaho. And the highest intensity that we're seeing the dieback is in the Willamette Valley up through Washington. Um, a lot of times we see it concentrated in metropolitan areas, especially around the Portland metropolitan area. Um, the dieback is, is very intense, which may be from a heat island effect. And then we're also seeing the dieback in typically drier habitats in central and northeast uh, Washington, where western red cedar also occurs, even though it seems like it's not prefer preferable habitat for the western red cedar. Okay. So I think you mentioned, you know, the, the climate change, you know, they, them not getting the moisture that they need um, is a big cause of this. But can you tease that out a little bit more? Just because, you know, we've definitely written stories about, you know, how this was the hottest year on record and these long droughts. But then at the same time, you know, there'll be close to normal years of, of rainfall mm -hmm. or precipitation. So can you kind of tease out what you think is, is going on here to cause this? Yeah, first of all, I'll tease out a little bit about what we found, but um, it's just scratching the surface and we have far more information on our story map. Um, and then I'll get into a little bit about the tree itself and what it requires um, and why this would be stressing this tree versus other trees um, more so. So in short, climate change that increases heat and decreases precipitation beyond the average is what's um, damaging these trees. As I mentioned, it's very insect and disease resistant. You'll often see Western red cedar that has quite a bit of rot in the heartwood, but they can withstand that because that's old tissue. It's no longer actively functioning. And so that's really not a problem. They can withstand that for quite some time. 
Um, but as I mentioned, it's not about record levels of precipitation and temperature. It's about timing, duration, frequency. And so there are more details in our story map. But for example, one correlation we found was um, a correlation uh, between the dieback of western red cedar area in areas and low precipitation in the form of snowpack in spring. And so what that is saying is um, not necessarily that those trees are getting um, precipitation or moisture directly from that snowpack, but it's an indication of we're having a shorter season where we have snowpack that's either being created or it is um, continuing on um, from being stored in the winter that it's still sticking around. And if it's not sticking around those higher elevations, it's probably drier at our lower elevations as well where Western red cedar is occurring. Um, and Western red cedar is not a very drought tolerant tree. Um, and there are some reasons for that that deal with its biology and its physiology. Um, one example is that it does not have a taproot. Like a lot of our other conifer species that do have taproots, they can just dive deeper. It has shallow but broad ranging roots. They can get a little deeper, but they don't go as deep as a lot of the other species. So if there isn't a lot of moisture at those higher levels, they can't, they don't really have a lot of options to go that much deeper or that go deeper that quickly. And then if there's competition in that root zone, such as you have overstocking of other trees or invasive plants in the understory that are competing for that moisture, that's all that much more stressful. It's stealing it away from those trees. And so they're just a little bit less suited to deal when we have a lower precipitation. Gotcha. Okay. Well, before we keep going, I wanted to, to shout out uh, Nathan Gillis. He's a reporter at Columbia Insight who has covered these issues really well lately. And in his recent story on Red Cedar, he had one line that really, you know, felt like it hit me with a baseball bat. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he wrote, the dieback is widespread and could be the beginning of the end for a species in many parts of the Pacific Northwest. I mean that that hurts. Um, that's that's striking. Is that taking it too far, or is that is that right on? Like, are we on the verge of losing red cedar in vast parts of its historic range? And what? And if it if we do lose it, where are we most likely to to lose it? Yeah, you know, I would um, tend to agree with Nathan. It is a canary in the coal mine, and we need to get serious about when we're seeing this type of mortality, especially in our keystone species. So um, it is something to take very seriously and um, act correctly um, because we are running out of time for some of these species. Um, and our models do indicate that we could be seeing a shift in uh, or a shrinkage in the range of western red cedar, meaning that they could only persist maybe in the coolest and most moist areas, maybe at higher elevations or along the coast. I do want to note, though, that in Oregon, we're not seeing a lot of western red cedar mortality along our coast range, where a lot of our trees are still thriving pretty well. But Washington is seeing quite a bit of western red cedar die back even in their moist coastal areas, such as along the Sound and within the Olympic Peninsula. And that just means that even though there's still moisture, there's less moisture than there was historically. So yeah, this species could be a canary in the coal mine, um, one of the first to fall, and we're going to have to shift our expectations of where we can see it persist. I wanted to ask about this because, you know, people in Western Oregon who go hiking, who go camping, I think we're definitely used to seeing Western red cedars out there, especially in the Cascade foothills, the Cascade range in the coast range that you talked about. So going forward, 
I mean, if this continues in the same way that it has, I mean, would we start to lose those even in kind of the wet rainforesty places that we think of like our Western red cedar, like, like, do we eventually lose them even from those like old growth, you know, areas that seem indestructible at this point? Yeah, um, we very well could lose the majority of them in those areas, but I'm always hopeful that we do have, you know, with at sites, we do have pockets of microclimates that could possibly still support them. So, for example, if I'm speaking with a landowner about um, growing Douglas fir in an area that's a bit drier, um, I caution that don't don't exclude that species on your landscape entirely because they could be planted in draws or in, in shaded areas or um, in areas that aren't and aspects that are most sun exposed that um, they could still persist in. So I say don't lose hope. There are still some pockets even within those habitats that they will still persist. And it'll probably be more exciting in the future than when you're hiking and you actually do see one of those species um, on, on the landscape where it used to predominate, but it, it isn't any longer. So um, don't lose all hope, but there will be some areas in which um, we just won't see red cedar either at the quantity that we're used to or at all. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to talk about Oregon white oak and firmageddon. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Pacific Ocean's king tides of winter are one of the most impressive sights on the Oregon coast, but they can also be a deadly hazard. Visit Tillamook Coast wants visitors who head out to the beach to be aware of the king tides that are expected to hit coastal areas November 24th through the 26th, December 22nd through the 24th, and January 20th through the 22nd. When king tides hit, it's important for visitors to observe waves from a distance. Normally, when visiting the ocean, the big rule of thumb is don't turn your back on the ocean. In the case of king tides, however, you don't want to go anywhere near the ocean. Three guidelines to focus on include staying off beaches during king tide events, staying off low-lying areas such as jetties or parking areas close to the beach, and staying off clip and staying off cliffs that can suddenly crumble when hit by powerful waves. For more information on king tides, visit www.oregonkingtides.net. Once again, www.oregonkingtides, all one word, .net. Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. 
Okay, up next, we're going to talk about the latest survey, and it hasn't even been published, in fact, so this is pretty new stuff, and it describes something the U.S. Forest Service called Furmageddon. So I'm going to ask you, what was this, and why did, it, why did they give it that dire-sounding name? Yeah, so this is a moniker um, that came out of what we saw during our forest health aerial surveys this past year, which was historic levels of mortality in true fir, which is a different group of trees than Douglas fir. Um, true, for, true fir mortality has been high for quite some time. We just saw peak levels this year during our aerial survey. So um, for background, the Forest Health Aerial Surveys are an annual flight of all forested areas that the Forest Service and State Forestry, that's in Oregon, it's Oregon Department of Forestry and Washington's Washington Department of Natural Resources, collaborate on. And in Oregon and Washington, it's the longest running survey of its kind going back over 70 years. So that's a really large data set. And so this data should be considered across a larger scale, such as relative to a watershed sized area rather than a smaller landscape. And it's to con uh, monitor conditions over time. And it's also to detect emerging issues that maybe we didn't see on the ground. So this is a massive data collection effort that is then utilized by researchers for finer scale investigation. But when we're up in that little plane um, flying over our forested areas year after year, um, we observe how it has changed from the previous year. And as I mentioned, we have been seeing a lot of true fur dieback for years. Um, but this year, it was quite intense. Um, it, it, it looked very devastating because it was on a landscape level scale in some areas. Okay, so what kinds of fur trees? Give me some examples of about, you know, names that people would recognize. And then what areas are you seeing the most sweeping mortality? Mostly people will recognize these as Christmas trees, um, but they uh, we're seeing this mortality not only in Christmas tree farms, the lower elevations where true fur actually doesn't really care to persist, but in areas where it does like to persist, such as higher elevation areas, cooler, moister areas. And this is grand fur, noble fur, silver fur, subalpine, you name it. Um, and we are seeing this mortality in all of those species at high and low elevations, and we're seeing it statewide. And the primary mortality agents, though, can vary by location, but the, the most all-encompassing one that's underlying this, um, these trees struggling are these hot droughts. So that mm -hmm. primary mortality agent is occurring statewide. And then scattered in other areas, we have other primary agents, such as root diseases and infestation by a long-established invasive insect called the balsam woolly adelgid. And when these trees are stressed by these agents, they're then also susceptible to being killed by opportunistic bark beetles such as fur engraver, which is not typically a tree killer when trees are healthy. So we often will mark a dead true fur as fur engraver, but that's really just to note that that's probably the last thing that finished it off. And we know um, what is underlying um, that insect taking effect in those trees. How long does it usually take for this to happen? Because it, it occurs to me, like, I think that the state at large and, you know, reporters like me have really been paying attention to drought levels really since that historic drought of 2015. Like it was so striking. It was so outside the norm of what we associate with Oregon that. But since then, it's been like hot year after hot year after hot year. You look at the drought mm -hmm. map, it's been you know, angry red for a really long time in large swaths of area. Yeah. So, I mean, is there a pretty good association between those angry red swaths and dead trees? Like, is it 
pretty one-to-one? Yeah, it's pretty one-to-one. There is usually a lag period of about a year. Um, It takes a while for trees to realize how stressed they are, and then it takes a while for them to die. And so, um, and contrarily, trees can't just bounce back immediately when conditions change. And so, as you mentioned, 2015 was a really rough year, but we had um, drought years before that. In the cycle of our climate, we actually are in a warm period um, in terms of like long-term um, climate. Um, but the intensity at which it's warm and dry is that pace that that's increasing beyond what we have seen before. Um, and, and trees can only withstand so much because they have this network of straws that goes from their roots through their trunk to the branches. And it's used to collect the water and then transport it throughout the tree. And when they are drought stressed, those straws break and they can't repair them. They have to rebuild them. And so this takes time and it also takes moisture in the meantime to support that process. So even if we have um, several years of drought and then, as I mentioned, it's punctuated by sufficient rain, the damage may be done. And it could take years after for the tree to realize um, and realize meaning that um, tissues die slowly, not often all at once. And so you'll slowly see that tree start to decline and then it will die back. And so I encourage people um, that aren't uh, forestry specialists to, it might be more relatable to think about the human body and how would the human body respond to certain types of physical stress or damage, especially if it's chronic um, um, and what it takes to heal, that it doesn't just happen overnight if conditions change. Okay. Well, you know, the news wasn't great for Douglas firs either. Uh, mentioned in that article, it wasn't nearly as dire, but it certainly wasn't good. So uh, what have you seen in these surveys, you know, related to Western Oregon's, you know, probably most famous tree? Yeah. So it's true that we did have less dieback in Douglas, Douglas fir relative to true fir last year, but we've had many upticks in the past in Douglas fir, as well as just long-term chronic dieback of Douglas fir across the state for years. And much of this Doug fir dieback has been attributed to drought, some due to wildfire damage or storm damage, and then subsequent opportunistic bark beetle attack. Um, but because Doug fir is so profitable as a timber tree, we are growing it quite densely even in areas that are predisposed to more intense drought stress, such as south-facing slopes and poor sites, um, like areas that have shallow or rocky soils. And so in these areas, we really need to focus on more drought-tolerant genotypes of Douglas fir um, or think about stocking. Um, And, you know, a very clear example, if you go to areas of southwest Oregon, you can see where Douglas fir is especially struggling because it's living amongst pine, oak, madrone. It's in these kind of oak savanna areas that um, if you look at the trees that are doing well, those are those ones that I listed, pine, oak, madrone, those are more drought tolerant. And then you'll see Doug fir struggling amongst those trees when the others are doing well. So um, obviously that's not a great area for Douglas fir. And we need to be more conscious of that rather than crossing our fingers and just waiting out these droughts because they are ongoing. Yeah. And I'm curious because, you know, I've written about what happens after, you know, high severity wildfire, like what sort of forest is going to going to return. I'm curious in the same way about these large diebacks that you're talking about, especially in areas where, you know, uh, you know, grand fur and true fur are, are dying off. Like in the future, if all of those die off, are they going to replace, be replaced by something that you're talking about? You know, pine, oak, madrone, like, does that just, that habitat just move north and they take over the forested areas or what does that future portend in there? 
it really depends on the the area and the situation. Um, what's in the seed bank below it? What is able to restock itself, or is it being aided by humans that are planting? Because um, you have situations such as um, where we have uh, lodgepole forests that um, lodgepole needs scarification by fire to open up its seeds and allow them to germinate. So it thrives well post wildfire. And so when you have a wildfire come through in a lodgepole area all that will spring up pretty much is lodgepole because they, mm. they do very well in that system. And then you have this dense thicket of lodgepole and then that's actually predisposed to more wildfire because all those crowns are touching and they're all stressed and beetles come in and kill them as well. And so it's just this never ending cycle of lodgepole dominated stands. But then you have some other areas in which one species maybe, you know, is not doing well due to drought, they start to die back and you actually have a seed bank that has um, some other seeds of other species that have been growing in the understory, maybe a smaller number, but now with this um, increased opening of resources, such as more sunlight due to the canopy being opened or more moisture because there's less competition for it, they can survive. So we might see a shift in some of these stands and that's very common. Um, it's, it's called a, a seral stage. And so you'll see one species dominate at one period and then another species dominate at another period. But I guess, you know, you've mentioned, you know, Western red cedar being in trouble, you know, true firs being in trouble, potentially Douglas firs. Being, but that's like those are like the most iconic Western Oregon trees I can think of. Like, would they get wholesale replaced in like 50 years? Is that going too far? Like, or is it going to be a mix? I guess I'm trying to think about like, what yeah. the, you know, like what the future of walking around Oregon looks like if it looks fundamentally different. Yeah, it's really hard to know. It's probably not going to be as sudden a change where all of a sudden in 50 years, this stand of trees is a totally different species dominating. Um, it's probably going to be a slower transition, just as we're seeing a slow transition of some of these species dying in some areas. In some years, we have an uptick and, and it looks more severe, but they've been slowly struggling in those areas for quite some time. Meanwhile, some other trees have started to take their place and we just haven't noticed it on the landscape. So yes, mm -hmm. we'll see change, but it might be a slower progression than what you might think. It okay. really depends on the area. Yeah. Okay. Well, I before we we you know get going here, I wanted to make sure I touched on Oregon white oak because again, that's yeah. another really beloved, really cool tree. So, real quick, do you mind describing uh, the tree? I don't think it, people have quite as good a image of it in their head as certainly the Douglas fir or Western red cedar. So, what makes it a special tree? What makes it stick out? Yeah. So Oregon white oak is um, our most common native oak species in Oregon. It can live up to 500 years and it's often found in dry areas and dominates savanna grasslands, which historically made up a lot of the Willamette Valley. But I will note it um, can do well in slighter, wetter areas too. It's not just a xeric species. So it's a slow growing but long lived tree, um, very beautiful uh, form to the tree and utilized for some products such as barrels, um, but really it's a, a great wildlife tree that provides habitat for nesting and all of the acorns provide um, a huge pulse of um, food for animals living in those areas. So um, very common site for us in the Willamette Valley and elsewhere. Okay. Well, the report that you sent out earlier um, or whether it was a report or an observation or a study, um, you know, it highlighted the an invasive uh, bug called an oak lace bug um, mm -hmm. that you said it had been around since 2015, um, but that the damage caused was more notable 
this year. So what what's what's going on? Like are the and are the White Oaks like dying, just damaged on that day in that dieback vortex that you talked about? Yeah. I, you know, I take great pains to indicate when uh, something is really a tree killer that we should be concerned with and things that are not because we don't want to waste resources or if we're applying insecticides, we don't need unnecessary use of those insecticides. So this is one of those cases in which, yes, it is an exotic, it is invasive um, because it can experience these upticks in populations as we saw this past year that can look quite devastating. So in the Willamette Valley, particularly in the north portion, we saw a lot of brown or splotchy looking leaves from this insect. Um, And it was just an uptick. It's been here for a while and we'll have those years where it looks kind of bad. It could be that we had a milder winter and so the populations were larger. Um, There could be a lot of factors as to why that population increased, but it does die back down again. We have seen upticks in the past. Um, And so, I I caution people not to worry too much about this one, at least for now, because um, it has been here for quite some time and we have seen upticks, but then we've seen colony collapses in this insect as well. But um, most importantly, um, oak is a deciduous tree, at least our Oregon white oak is a deciduous tree. It's used to dropping its leaves every year. And so this insect causes damage just to the leaves. And so the premature loss of these leaves or the damage in these tree, um, to these trees is not that big of a deal because they're just going to drop their leaves. If you have sequential years of attacks, that could be a different story, but we just haven't seen that quite yet. Okay. So this isn't to the extent of concern as the true firs or the Western red cedars? I would say let's not concern ourselves with this one as much. Things could change in the future with conditions. You never know. Um, but we have not seen that with this insect just yet. Okay. Well, that 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 at least is uh, is something. Um, yeah. Optimistic. So like, so let, let's end on this. So um, I wrote a few years ago about years ago about how climate change and wildfires might impact forests. I came away not totally depressed, at least in Western <laughs> Oregon, because it seemed like you know most of the struggle that was being observed at that point was more on the margins, the transition zones between the Willamette Valley where maybe Douglas fir wouldn't survive in the Valley, but it would be fine in the wetter and cooler parts of the um, coast range and up into the Cascade foothills. So I guess my question after these studies is it sounds like, does that blow a hole in that assumption? Like is everything kind of up for grabs or on the table or is there any hope that this is like a short-term thing? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I always like to try and give a silver lining. It can be, it can be hard to find these days. It does feel like the sky is falling, especially when we encounter stories of one stressor or pest right after the other. So we had in 2021, the heat scorch. And then this year we found emerald ash borer, which is an exotic that um, will cause Dutch elm disease like mortality of our ash trees. So it's really, easy to feel helpless in the face of climate change. But if we can just adapt to following what the climate is inevitably going to do, rather than trying to avoid it or ignore it or think that we'll get through it, we need to continue to plan for it by planting the right species in the right place. Um, And desperate times call for desperate measures. We can no longer ignore more extreme options, such as assisted migration, such as planting um, species that are found at more southerly latitudes or elevations at northern or higher elevations. Um, But realize that many forest health issues must be prevented. They can't be controlled very easily once they've already taken hold. But luckily, we have the, the preventative tools 
that can tackle a lot of these things at once, such as thinning and prescribed fire, they work for multiple stressors. So climate change, wildfire, insect pests. And if we can just plan in advance, um, spend the time and money, get preventative, we're going to be in a lot better shape. And we're always going to have trees in Oregon. Um, they will outlive humans. <laughs> and it's just um, getting used to what we're seeing where, um, and we will still have these pockets of um, habitat that we are used to here and there. Okay. Well, that that's something. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I've been talking with Christine Buell, uh, forest entomologist with the Oregon Department of Forestry. Thanks so much, Christine. All right. Thank you so much, Zach. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.